Amen. Please be seated. May we always sing the song of our salvation, and that's what we have before us in Isaiah 26, this gospel of Isaiah. And if you will turn there to the 26th chapter, uh, we will begin with verse 1. I'll read just the first nine verses to begin our time together. Uh, If you have a pew Bible or your version or your uh, electronic copy, whatever you have to look uh, look at, please do look at chapter 26. You will need to see all the verses. It's on page 586 in your pew Bible. Chapters 24 through 27 of this great prophecy uh, tells the tale of two cities, basically. It's a theme that runs through Scripture, we'll find. There's the city of man, built on the worship of man, uh, the self-sustaining, pompous, invincibility of man. You know, the nations that surrounded Israel were uh, typical of the city of man, but the problem was the people of God, who were supposed to be uh, resemblers of the city of God, uh, were integrated into the city of man, and God was calling them to account. That's a big part of why this prophecy is written. The city of God is far different than the city of man. Though they dwell together on earth, the city of God is an eternal city. It's invisible to our seeing. In these days, it was embodied by Israel, the people of God. In our days, the church is supposed to represent the city of God on earth. It has eternal foundations based on the redeeming Messiah. That's how we have entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not something we give ourselves citizenship in. God breathes life into us through his son, and we become members of his kingdom, of his city. And God has his city placed in order to call people from the city of man to the city of God. But ultimately, the city of God prevails. And there's a celebration of that prevailing that we have before us. There's a picture of what will surely happen that gives us strength and encouragement and steadfastness now when there's so much turmoil in the big picture and then in our lives. We all understand this. There's a a macro picture speaking to the people of God corporate, but there's also a micro picture that every one of us will get a sense of, that battle that we are in, Uh, that one foot in the city of man, knowing God's called us out, he's redeemed us, but we struggle against trusting man and trusting the temporal stuff more than God, our eternal father, who we know is true, but yet the struggle is real in our lives. The way we gain strength is by constantly celebrating the grace by which we have been saved. By celebrating the salvation of God on a regular basis, the people of God gain endurance to withstand this fight, this struggle we're in. So we should never stop singing the song of salvation, and we have such a song before us in these verses. Here as I read Isaiah 26, 1 through 9, although we will look at the entire chapter this morning, Lord willing. Hear God's holy and inspired word. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. 
The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we see the driving message of the prophet over these last chapters. That we, your people, are to trust in you and not in man. You are calling us to rest and rely upon you and the salvation that you have provided for us in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. We are citizens of your city, but we live in a world mixed with the two cities, and it's confusing, it's difficult, it's trying, even oppressive for so many in the world who trust in you. Yet you have plucked us from the fire and have promised us a glorious, secure future. In securing your glory, you have secured a people for which we rejoice, we are encouraged for living today, and we sing this song of salvation. And as difficulties come our way, please give us steadfastness, endurance, and remembrance as we sing of our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. When you think about perseverance and what gives us strength to stick with something when we begin it, to endure through a difficult task. Knowing the outcome, when we're sure of what will come, that is a powerful, powerful preserver. It gets us through. It helps us know that the struggle that we are enduring is for a purpose, and it has an end. I mean, you could think of this on temporal levels in all sorts of ways. Think about, maybe some of you are students now. And you start a course of study. Maybe it's four years of college or four years plus more, six years, seven years. You think of these years, and you're just starting the process. But you have a goal. You see a trade or a profession or something you could do at the end of it that you'll have derive some joy from. And so it helps you. Knowing that end goal, it helps you go through whatever the trial is. How about a person trying to regain health? You know, after the first of the year, everybody has all these different new commitments to get healthy. It's a struggle. You have to adjust diet, no doubt, engage in exercise. But the future picture of health and how that feels and what it allows, that picture is what helps you through the discipline stage. It's so tough. We all understand how an end goal or a picture of what will be helps us in the meantime. We also know when we don't have an end goal or we don't know what it will look like, how difficult it is to endure. The picture of the future is a powerful motivator for endurance and perseverance. And I know this is true because God consistently uses it to uphold his people in the worst of circumstances. So whatever our corporate circumstances as Christians or Christians in the world who have it so difficult in most places, or whatever it is personally, whatever your individual stru- struggle or strain is, or what you're anxious about right now, or you're stressed about, or you're thinking about, or it's even hard to listen to whatever I'm saying, or to be here because you have five things that are really worrying you, whatever it may be that you're wrestling through, 
God continually reminds us of the most important thing, the ultimate outcome that is true for all of us, which is his final salvation. And it's closer than any of us can imagine. It's not that far away. And by knowing that's true, it helps us through whatever it is we deal with corporately and individually. And I'm never afraid of saying it too much because God's word says it over and over. When you're struggling, when it's difficult, when you don't understand the future, when you don't get God's plan, it's always sing of his salvation. And you will be re-grounded in what is ultimately true. And it will help you whatever case you find yourself in. The certainty of our final salvation most assuredly fixes our eyes where it ought to be. And by the way, it's not ultimately our salvation. It's actually God's glory that is gained through our salvation, which we'll see laid out in this passage again. We've seen it through Isaiah in God's just judgment, his glory manifested. We're saved so that we can give glory to God and recognize his glory is recognized on the earth. It's more complex than just we've been saved from hell. That's glorious. It's more complex than we've been saved so we have a purpose in this life uh, that will end. That's important, but it's ultimately part of God's plan to glorify himself, and that gives us even more joy when we recognize what he has made us a part of. So the certainty of our final salvation, it fixes us on God's glory, which helps us to endure the difficulties of life in a fallen world. We see this played out in this continuing song. We're in a section of Isaiah. Two of the chapters are defined as or identified as songs. And it says it very plainly in the first verse. In that day, this song will be sung. This is the song of our salvation. And he's speaking of that future end goal of God to work salvation to its ultimate point. So there's a future reference that we sing about now that helps us in the present And that's important for Judah, who is struggling with the oppression of the nations around them, their own sin, their waywardness, their sense of sorrow over where they had come to. But it says, look ahead, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. You could see on the one hand, Isaiah is picturing the final salvation that they'll experience, that we'll experience. His ultimate visitation, his ultimate deliverance. But on the other hand, there's a desire for God's will to be realized in some form then. Uh, They want to feel this peace even in the midst of their difficulty. Sort of like when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that day, this final day, says, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Once again, back to the first verse that sets up what this nation is identified as and how we can understand it. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in the city of God in the land of Judah will be a strong city. And this is something that would have really appealed to a very weak city. Judah's reduced to just a small portion of southern Palestine at this point. They are really vulnerable. They don't have walls that could probably stand up to an attack. God gives supernatural protection and deliverance. That's the only thing stopping the enemy from taking them. Their walls aren't strong enough. Their bulwarks, which is a synonym for walls or a strengthened part of 
a fortress. These things are not strong enough to stop anybody, especially Assyria, from just running them over. But God's salvation that they can celebrate, it will have as its walls and as its bulwarks his salvation. Now those are walls that cannot be breached. In this day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, the opposite of what they had then. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. If God sets up his salvation as the protector, as the thing that keeps them secure, they can be sure that it will not be breached. The city will have more uh, soldiers and chariots and horsemen guarding, but they all can be overrun. This city that God builds will have more than all those things. This city that God is building and bringing things to will have more than just tall stone walls to protect more than bulwarks. In fact, using this familiar imagery, Isaiah describes God's salvation in this very picturesque way. And it's also what the hymn writer, John Newton, meant to convey when he wrote, glorious things of these thee are spoken. God whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose with salvation's walls surrounded thou may smile at all thy foes it's the same thing martin luther meant to say when he said a mighty fortress is our god a bulwark never failing totally different than the city of man where their walls and their bulwarks failed over and over and over with each new kingdom But the walls of salvation cannot be knocked over. Whatever happens externally, the walls of salvation keep us secure. And he describes those who enter the city, that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Now understand, he's speaking of the people of God contained in a nation. This, for our understanding, now means those who are God's people by faith in Christ. And it's faith that gives us the basis for our standing. It's faith that imputes to us righteousness that God provides through his Son. But there's also a demonstration of that faith by what people do, by their faithfulness to God's commands, to his covenant commands. I love what John Oswald says when he describes what verse 2 means, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. He says it this way, the gates are not open to everyone. They're open to those who choose to live in the ethical righteousness of the covenant. I think, well, is that by works? Is that what he means? But listen. But the key is not some kind of ritual purity, but a kind of behavior that mirrors the king. One is able to behave in this way because of a complete inner integrity that stems from or comes from the complete dependence on God, faith, and trust in him. And we see it later in the text when it describes God as doing our works but will demonstrate that faith that he's given us by how we obey him. And that will describe or manifest for people the city of God. The song continues. Look at verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Look at all the words that are meant to convey faith trust, reliance. Keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. That's trust in you, relies in you, has faith in you. That's where peace comes from, is faith in the never-changing one, the all-providing one, the Savior. Trust in the Lord forever. 
It will never change. He will always be Savior, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Remember how insecure these people were? We looked at the text last week, and we saw how God described himself as grabbing the earth and twisting it and breaking it, basically. For the pagan mind, the earth was eternal. I mean, the heavens and the earth and the, and the mountains, they were there forever. Man came and went, but the, the earth was always there. And God's saying, that's not how it is. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he can break them, and he will do that. But here it says, to give them the place where they should have their trust, verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting God, everlasting rock, rock. Now that is meant to connect back to what he says in chapter 24, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Chapter 25, the earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So this 26th chapter begins with a song, a song of salvation, that helps us fix our eyes where they need to be fixed, and it helps us endure whatever may happen, whatever may come. Verse 5, For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust, another reminder that what you think is so strong, so everlasting, so powerful, God will lay it low. The foot tramples it. The feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. See what that verse is saying. There's a humbling of the city of man, high and made low, and instead of the poor and the needy being trampled, God's justice and salvation pictures the poor and the needy doing the trampling. There's a total reversal in how things will look. What a great salvation that we have that he describes. It may be difficult now and the world may be crushing in on Christians, especially in most places on earth. But salvation assures a reversal of fortunes that's eternal. Now, what comes next is more of what Isaiah gives as the focus for the people of God to celebrate. I think this takes a bit of thinking for us, especially as Western Christians living today. When we think of our salvation, we often think of what we are saved from, which is absolutely true. We're saved from sin Hell, death, and the grave, as E.V. Hill said when he used to preach. And it's a great salvation for sure. Worthy to be celebrated are the things that we have been saved from. No question. But understand that where we fit and our salvation fits into the great work of God, I think when we understand this and start to plumb the depths of it, as Scripture lays it out, it's actually a stronger and a deeper root or rock for us to rest upon for our life and worship. Our salvation is not the centerpiece of God's work. The restoration of his holy name, the manifesting of his holy name on all the earth, that's what he's working towards. The chief way in which he does this is by saving sinners who are his enemies. So we benefit from salvation. We celebrate it. But when we sing of our salvation, think of the full work of what God is doing. God is restoring himself is the identifiable sovereign one that nobody could deny, and his justice is completely expressed. And the people of God will 
give praise to his glory and what he's doing and his justice. And we won't say, are you fair, are you not fair? We'll be like, yes, he's fair, and finally his name is vindicated. And that's the celebration we long for, and that's the thing that God builds in us when he saves us so we can recognize his sovereign hand and his majesty and his glory and his holiness and we'll rejoice in his justice and we'll want to see everybody give praise to that. He has saved us unto that. And so when we sing of our salvation, it's not just that we've been saved from hell. It's that God would somehow, in his grace, choose us to be able to manifest his glory by what we say and by what we do. That's the transformation he's working. And that will finally happen. And by telling us what will finally happen, it helps us now, by God's grace, to live according to that, even just an inkling of what will come in glory. Our salvation is the fruit of God's work that that we celebrate. But this real celebration comes from God's manifested glory. And that's what we fix our eyes on, and that's what the text speaks of in verses 7 to 15. Notice the interplay between God's glory manifested and our trust in him and our celebration of our salvation all rolled into this repeating message that we find. These kingdoms, the cities of man, built on opposition to God's reign, opposing, trying to take from God's glory when you think about what man does apart from God. We make cities or we make ourselves as monuments to self. That's how we think if we're not saved, if we're not redeemed from thinking like that. But God is long-suffering, but eventually his patience will run out and he will bring his enemies low, and in bringing them low, he will elevate his name to its proper place. He will restore his reputation No one will be able to deny his greatness. And at the same time, his people will be made manifest for how they contrast the city of man. Verse 5 says, For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. That was another picture of what he does. But skip down to verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous, so he makes the way clear for us. Uh, There was opposition, but he'll remove that opposition in that final day. We look forward to that. No more striving in that sense. There was a completion of God's work in this picture. There was a competition for God's glory, and so the righteous suffers under the weight of man's pride. But with God's justice and judgment being done, the proud city of man is obscured. Look at verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you, Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Your name being famous, you being known, you being manifested, that's what we desire. That's what we long for. Verse 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. We know when you show yourself, when you manifest your glory, that people turn to you. There's a shift now in the passage. It was all about the future picture. Now he's saying something, the prophet's speaking in a way that says, Lord, we know ultimately what will happen. Show yourself in this way now. And of course, it's a prayer for their deliverance. They see, the prophet sees what's happening to Israel. He's asking for God to manifest himself now because if he does and people see this just judgment, then they'll turn, or they'll be made aware of God's righteousness. And we desire for you to be vindicated. 
your name to be glorified. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. It's not just judgments in so far as discipline is concerned or punishment, but when your statutes, when your commandments are manifested on the earth, when people see God's righteousness, they learn righteousness. That's the way God works. God's judgments manifest his glory. But if this doesn't happen, then the wicked prosper. Look at verse 9. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In other words, if he has a clear path, if he's not stopped by your judgments, if he's not upended by your discipline, he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. So, Lord, if you don't show your judgment, if you don't show your hand of justice then the wicked will not learn, and they will deal corruptly. They'll keep oppressing. They'll keep making life miserable for your people. Oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. What a picture and what a prayer that Isaiah has. He goes from the Song of Salvation and then he turns it to a fixing on God's glory. Now, he's asking God to bring glory to himself. He knows that if God brings glory to himself, that people will see who God is. That's an important feature for our daily lives. I know a lot of this can be complex when we start to study in the prophet, but it's this simple. is the people of God recognize that we, in some sense, manifest God, who he is. That will bring a certain conviction upon the city of man, and God uses that to bring people from the city of man to the city of God. Now, I don't mean that the people of God think they're righteous and show off their righteousness like a holier-than-thou kind of attitude. Not at all. It's the full package of what the people of God are about, called-out ones who confess their sins, know there's nothing in us that can save us. We are not righteous. Only Christ is righteous. We celebrate his righteousness that's credited to us so that we are right with God, but it's only God's grace that gives us any insight to this, and we celebrate it, and we worship, and we attempt to obey by God's grace, and God takes that effort, as little as it may be, on the part of us people, and he manifests himself to the world that's watching, and he calls people to himself through that means, through that witness. So focusing on the glory of God will help us get a better picture of our purpose, and it will make us more effective. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. If there was any question about what was meant in verse 2 about the righteous entering in, that question should go away here. We see what God provides even for us. He provides for us the means necessary for us to obey him. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. You have made the way. If there's any salvation, it's in God. Physical, temporal, and eternal. O Lord, verse 13, our God. Other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. This could be referenced to back, who knows, the time of the, the time of the judges when all these uh, different nations ruled over Israel. But even now, they were under the influence of the nations that were powerful around them. Lord, there have been other lords, small l, who have ruled over us, who had influence over us. But your name, in your name alone, 
we bring to remembrance. The only name that will last, the only king that will matter, will be the king of the universe. And your name will come to remembrance. Your glory, your name will be manifested for eternity. You see the fixing on God's glory. The focus of the people of God who've been saved is on the glory of God. That's their desire, to see the glory of God. For all the things the Reformation was about, the thing that really drove the Reformers was the glory of God and its seeming loss. The church in that time had made itself a, a, a glory unto itself. I mean, the amount of pomp and the amount of celebration about itself and its office and its, its offices and its institution obscure Jesus. People could not see King Jesus in the midst of all of this. Uh, they could only see one who said he represented Jesus in a school of those who thought they represented or intervened or were some kind of vicars for him. And it just made it impossible for the average person to look to the church and see What's the message of the gospel? How can a sinner be saved when all I see is this pomp and this elevation of man's rituals? And the glory of God was obscured, and that's the thing that I think offended the hearts of the reformers. And then, of course, so much came from that. But it's ultimately, all glory should go to God, none to man. And that's what drove reform, a focus back on the glory of God. I think that any time we have difficulty in the life of the church, or as individuals, take it to your individual life, it relates to our understanding of how important God's glory is. What is the purpose for why we do what we do? For his glory. And here's the beauty. If we strive for God's glory in our life as people who are redeemed, there is a joy that comes with that because it's what we're called to do. It's what we're equipped to do. It's where we find our enjoyment. So it's exactly right in the first catechism question. Nail it. What is man's chief end, his chief purpose? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We'll sing of salvation, we'll enjoy his salvation, and we'll bring glory to his name. That's what happens in this 26th and into the 27th chapter as well. And what a beautiful thing is said in verse 14. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, You have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. All the opposition to to God throughout all the millennia, all the haters of God in his name, all the oppressors of those who are identified with Christ, they will be remembered no more. They will be put to shame and done away with. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. All true, despite where they were in this time. God had done all that for them. It was a recollection of his salvation. O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. It's true that this has laden in this uh, oracle a picture of final salvation. We see that in the first verses. But the oracle is also to evoke praise to God for his last judgment and his glory for sure. The oracle is also meant to bring conviction and faith to, uh, in God's Messiah to anybody who hears the message. But it's also specially aimed at the faithful, the faithful remnant in Judah who are suffering. Isaiah speaks to those, these struggling believers, as he does today, who long for God's justice and salvation but were called to wait. They had to wait through difficulty, wait through persecution, oppression, trial. This chapter is meant finally to give endurance for this waiting process that we may find ourselves in. Starting in verse 16, 
O Lord, in distress they sought you. They, we're talking about those who are faithful, the remnants, you might say. In distress they sought you. Isaiah speaking on behalf of those folks. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. So there's an evidence of repentance. There's an evidence of acknowledgement that the discipline was fair. But they whispered a prayer when your discipline was upon them. And what a metaphor, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhe. But we have given birth to wind. They failed. That's what they're saying. We failed. We recognize this. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. We have not been your people like you've called us to be your people. This is the exact response Isaiah is trying to evoke by this prophecy. And we're hearing it from those who were the faithful remnant. Not, oh Lord, you're so hard on us. You ask so much of us. You're making it so difficult, Lord. It's not fair what you're doing. No one could do. We've accomplished no deliverance. We couldn't save ourselves. And the inhabitants of the world, they have not fallen. They have not responded to us in the way that you had called us to see them respond. We started with a vision of the future. Then we had strength derived in the present based on this future certainty. Now we have something very immediate, a prayer for strength right here and now for the faithful remnant to endure and wait on God's final salvation. There's a repentance in this response, I hope you see. And I think it's a tremendous model for repentance for us. The intended response. When you hear God speak something that convicts you, don't have as a first response, even though it would be the natural response, to say it's not fair, or that's too tough, or the right response is, Lord, we have failed. In our own efforts, in our own strength, we have not done what you have called us to do, and we heartily repent. We're sorry for this. We're sorrowful. What comes next are these words of grace, because judgment is never the final story in any of the prophet's messages. What comes next are incredible, comforting, and revealing words. Look at verse 19, the first reference in the book of Isaiah of explicit resurrection as God's plan. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. It may be true that they will suffer and even die for their faith. They may have to wait on God in that respect. But ultimately, God's dead will rise. They will live. Their bodies will rise. Those who dwell in the dust, as it were, will awake and sing for joy. God's dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. 700 years before Jesus comes, we have a picture of the ultimate fruit that comes from Christ's work on the cross, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 20, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while while the fury has passed by. So endure 
Understand there's trial coming. He says to people who understand this, I mean, Assyria is all over them. Endure, he says. Enter your chamber, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. You can imagine that picture that happens in the Midwest so often when t- tornadoes come. And people hide in the safe spot that they have designated. Some have tornado shelters. Some find the strongest room in the house. And they bear up under that while the tornado comes. And it may tear apart the house. It may tear it down. But that spot that's designated should hold. And you'll be there even when, even suffer injury, but you'll be alive. And that's kind of the picture you have here. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will, be, and will no more cover it slain. Difficult picture. Difficult picture in a difficult time. But it's a picture laden with God's grace. And it's a song of his salvation that will help us endure whatever happens on the outside of our lives. There's a personal parallel with this national or corporate message, and I hope you have seen it. God challenges us, his people, about our trust and our devotion. Do you trust in me or do you trust in man is what God is ultimately saying. Really, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, that's the message. Do you trust in me or do you trust in man? God challenges his people with this question in all ages. Do you trust in me or do you trust in man? The way it's depicted in this passage before us is by contrasting the city of man with the city of God, the two different objects of trust. If we are in Christ by faith, we are true citizens of the city of God, but we live on earth, and we're mixed with the city of man, so to speak. And sometimes we take on its character, its values, its practices. The city of man built on fading foundations. The city of man is built on an abiding trust in man's abilities, man's values, man's pursuits, ultimately proving futile. The city of man, it's a celebration of man, an arrogant city, a city built as a monument to self. The city of God, though, is built on eternal foundations. The city of God is built on an abiding trust in God's supremacy, his justice, his sovereignty, his power, his purpose, his grace, his love, his glory. It's an everlasting city for that reason. The city of God is a celebration of God's greatness. A city dependent on the Holy One. People say, will it be boring in heaven? Will it be boring in glory? Could you ever get done celebrating the greatness of God? You cannot. I don't know what it'll be exactly like, but it will never be boring. It will be never-ending. We think in terms of the city of man, and that's why it's boring. But the city of God is greater in every aspect, and it would blow our minds to even have a glimpse of what that really means. The city of God is dependent on the Holy One, built by the sovereign hand of Almighty God through the conquering power of Messiah, Jesus, the divine Son. Our lives bear the marks of this citizenship, even in messed up form. Do our lives. How do our lives bear the marks of this citizenship? I close with these verses. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Lord, you are truly the everlasting rock. It is your glory that will last forever, will be everlasting, eternal. Lord, give us zeal and desire to celebrate your glory now, to see your name manifested on the earth. 
what will be true in the future, we pray for realization today that there would be a great, great sweeping of your glory across the earth, that many, many would come to see you. And before it's too late, before this eternal final consummation of all things, if your just and judgment happen, I pray that many, many, many would repent as they see your just works and your judgments on the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.